Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Dan, welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks since we last recorded, and uh, a lot has changed. I I suppose that's true. Yeah, no, I I have no idea what I'm supposed to actually respond anymore. I'm I'm so out of practice. I'm I'm just so rusty. Uh, Hi, how are you, Leslie Goldberg, my podcasting partner? It is good to be back to podcasting with you again. Yay. I hope that our listeners have not missed us too, too much. We did warn them that we were taking a couple weeks off. So hopefully nobody was shocked and disappointed by the absence of the podcast. And hopefully everyone will be horribly, horribly relieved that we're back with an emphasis on horribly. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and, uh, did you have a good Thanksgiving? I know you uh, went abroad with your family. I I went abroad with my family, uh, lots of simchas with my family in uh, in different countries, uh, returned with COVID. So if I sound at all uh, chesty or foggy or lethargic or whatever, I will I will blame my health. uh, But I am mostly fine and we are doing this entirely via the the zoom type platform that we use and therefore nobody is going to get sick from listening to me including you well here's to a speedy recovery dan i know uh you are one of the most committed staffers that i know and colleagues that i've ever worked with in my in my career and of course you're recording a podcast and i even said let's take another week off so you can focus on your health and i believe your direct response and i quote was no end quote (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that seems about right. No, yeah, I look, on, brand, Dan. honestly, I'm fine. If, uh, you know, if, if, if I'd had a cold, I wasn't going to say let's not record for a cold. And this particular version that I have, as I am well and truly and thoroughly vaxxed up and all of that good stuff, it, it really is just a cold, but whatever. Anyway, so yes. Uh, and was your was your Thanksgiving joyful? Yes, it was great. We hosted, um, we had about eight here a uh, big family thing my mom sadly we had covid got covid from going to see a, a friend in a rehab facility and she didn't make it so that's a bummer but she's feeling a lot better she was, the, unable, uh, she, was, drug. she was unable to attend she was unable to attend because she got covid <laughs> from going to visit one of her friends in a rehab facility. Uh, I understand. After, Just when you say accident. she got yeah. COVID and she didn't make it, I am no, reassuring God, no, the God, listeners no. that no, all my is mom, well. My mom is doing doing well. <laughs> Yes, um, just, has just, the, just has the, the brain fog that follows COVID. 
and Absol- uh, we're sending speedy recovery vibes not only to you but to my mom and and to my wife's aunt and uncle who also got covid so to, to my dad it's a, a little cetera. crazy out here right now so yeah, you know everyone just take care of yourselves take care of other people and uh and don't be the 75 people hacking up lungs on the airplane while not wearing masks on all of my flights so <laughs> yeah well back to the tv industry it turns out you take a couple of weeks off around a holiday you miss a whole lot bob Iger is back at disney uh, a longtime cbs exec and friend of the five kelly call out at cbs mark burnett finally out at mgm his reign of terror at mgm tv is kaput and you've got andor ended and now the world cup is underway my, my twitter feed is a lot of World Cup stuff, uh, a lot of baseball offseason talk, and nobody's just talking a lot about of gloom baseball offseason I mean, talk. <laughs> I follow a lot of sports writers, so yeah, there's a lot of baseball talk on my feed. But um, but yeah, there, it's there's and there's a lot of gloom and doom, obviously in in the, the entertainment sector right now. A lot of layoffs underway. Um, just it, it's a crazy time, but it also honestly isn't surprising because this is on you know that we've seen the tea leaves for this. For the last few months and obviously coming out of COVID or not out of COVID or however you want to phrase it, but the industry continues to evolve, especially in our challenging economic times right now. So, And, you know, everything is everything is falling apart in different areas. Uh, so, you know, if you if you like us spend entirely too much time on on Twitter, uh, people have been quitting and leaving Twitter, but not actually leaving Twitter now for about three weeks straight. Uh, uh, my Mastodon account is blowing up. Uh, what what other social media services have you joined lately, Leslie? Are you on uh, Hive? Are you on Post? Are you on Florp? Is that last one even real? No. <laughs> I joined a- Mastodon, but I'm not, I'm like never, I think I was on it for like a day. And then I just realized that I didn't care. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not convinced that Hive and Post are real either. So, like at this at this point, I am done signing up for for new things. Uh, I do not need to be the cool new adopter. I am going to stumble along on Twitter. Uh, my Mastodon account does exist; it, it is a thing. But I'm going to stumble along on Twitter, feeling generally disgusted by the entire thing until enough people in a critical mass, and by that I mean general mass, more than massive critics uh until enough people actually tell me that one of these other social media platforms is good as opposed to just oh something new we're playing around with or oh it's got a lot of annoying things but it kind of has the same interface as twitter there's a lot of of random overcompensation and and whatever trying to pretend that the next thing is the next thing which is absolutely forcing technological innovation which is not the way that anything actually works organically so so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm on Twitter, but I'm really trying to limit how much time during the day, especially at night, that I actually spend on that platform. Obviously, I'll tweet, you know, the bigger stories, but I've been tweeting less and less, especially about things that are not TV related, because that's I know what people follow me on that platform for. So, you know, the big stories, I'll you know, if I'm around, I'll tweet them. And if not, you can always find everything that I do over on the live feed blog at THR.com. Excellent. Let's get down to business. Yes, as much as things change and evolve, some things stay the same, and that's including how we open this podcast with headlines. So we're going to play a little bit of catch-up here over the last couple of weeks, but largely not a ton going on because, well, there was a holiday. Well, except for the gigantic executive changes that you mentioned. And we'll like get to that next, but not ago. with headlines. Okay. Number one. 
Up first, Robert De Niro will star in a political thriller from NBC News boss Noah Oppenheim and Narcos showrunner Eric Newman for Netflix in what will be his first regular series television role. Continuing with the big names doing TV series for the first time, Scarlett Johansson will make her leading TV role debut in the Amazon series Just Cause, a reboot or remake or continuation of a movie with Sean Connery and Lawrence Fishburne that I definitely 100% saw and remember absolutely nothing about. And therefore, it is absolutely IP that is ripe for the expansion. Uh, anyway, continuing <laughs> along, Natasha Rock Rothwell will write and star in the Hulu comedy How to Die Alone via her deal with the Onyx Collective. Yeah, so not, not really surprised to see more and more big names heading to TV. I'm so. not, but... Of I mean, Harrison of Ford's the, in two right now, right? Harrison Ford is all over. We've thing, already plus shrinking at Apple, and and you know, two, and that was after having dropped out of the staircase. So Harrison Ford really, really, really wants to get into television. Uh, so good for him. No, I just don't understand. Of all the projects in the entire possible world, and all of the things in her back catalog, why Scarlett Johansson would look at Just Cause as the thing that really, really, really she wanted to commit to for possibly four to six years. So yeah, little, little on the baffling side, but everybody's got to eat. And if, uh, if, if that Colin, Colin Jost, uh, weekend update money isn't enough for the, the family, uh, yay, bring on just cause the television show. Right. Because I mean, she, it's not like she has Marvel money or anything. Oh, wait, moving on with headlines and you can file this one under holiday news dump. ABC has scrapped its David E. Kelly straight-to-series drama Avalon, which was to have starred Nev Campbell after viewing the pilot. The move is reminiscent of when ABC also scrapped its Alec Baldwin-Kelsey Grammer comedy that was also ordered straight-to-series and also abandoned after the pilot. So what you're seeing here is, yes, sometimes you give out a straight-to-series big orders from huge producers like David E. Kelly and, and top stars like Baldwin and Kelsey Grammer. And sometimes they don't come together. And that proves why some networks and platforms still use the traditional development process. In renewals that aren't the least bit surprising, Paramount Plus has given a speedy second season pickup to Tulsa King, the latest show from Taylor Sheridan, the guru behind all things Yellowstone, which also includes 1883, the aforementioned upcoming 1923? 1923? Sure, why not? Whatever the hell year it is. Uh, and sure to be various other arbitrary sequels in which people refer to their last name as Dutton exactly once, and therefore everyone goes, ooh, it's a Yellowstone series. Anyway, continuing along, Hulu has picked up a second season of Tell Me Lies, one of several shows from earlier this year on Hulu that have entirely generic titles that I really can't tell apart from each other. But speaking of Yellowstone <laughs> and 1923 and 1883, and you get the point with generic titles. Yeah, well, I mean, those at least once they're on Paramount Plus, I just assume that anything with a number in it is a Yellowstone prequel. And that's pretty simple as opposed to Tell Me Lies, which could be any number of 75 different shows. I don't know why it isn't the Apple TV uh, journalism thing. Uh, the one that had at some point Truth Aaron Paul. Yes, that one. Exactly. See, that is impressive that you actually remember its real name. I surely do not. Uh, what was the one? Tell me. Wasn't there another Tell Me Lies that like TNT developed and then it went to like Amazon or something? What was that uh, one? Uh, well, that was definitely actually a show that existed. You are correct. Uh, and I have no recollection. Yeah, exactly. Peak TV, y'all. 
It's true. And last on the renewal front, HBO has given a season three pickup to Mike White's quote unquote anthology, uh, The White Lotus. Unclear if this one will also feature Jennifer Coolidge returning for another vacation or just a bunch of other awful people in exotic locations. Yeah, so lots of renewals that you just listed, but we're still missing a couple here, Dan. Where's League of Their Own? Where's the renewal for high school over on Freebie? And I believe there's another one on your uh, on your list too, Mo at Netflix. Yep, that we still haven't are, heard, heard of. Those are absolutely three. <laughs> now that we don't need to keep going with uh, where's the renewal for this fool and a couple other things, some of the renewals we are getting, some of them are a little slow. We have to acknowledge that, uh, you know, everyone works at their own pace these days. And there are lots and lots of reasons why some things are getting picked up and some things are not. But as we... As we reach top 10 season, it seems like a pretty safe bet that League of Their Own, Mo, and High School are going to be on some lists. But then again, probably so will some other shows that have have already quickly passed away. So I personally enjoyed, really enjoyed Queer as Folk. And obviously, it's even more timely when you look at at how that series opened and what's been going on in the LGBTQ community in terms of, well, there was another shooting at a nightclub. Um, but again, Peacock canceled that one qu- pretty quickly, sadly. Um, but yeah, that, you know, in terms of other things going on, League of Their Own, um, obviously it's an Amazon show. Freebie is am- owned by Amazon and they obviously distributed high school. Lots going on at Amazon. We'll get to that in our next topic. Um, but yeah, and the other piece of it, too, is League of Their Own is owned by Sony, and there's a lot going on there, too. New executive, lots of restructuring, et cetera. So lots going on behind the scenes on some of those. And uh, going back to headlines here, former Walking Dead showrunner and friend of the five, Angela Kang, has been tapped to serve as showrunner on Silk, the first of the Sony-produced Marvel shows for Amazon. These are, of course, the big batch of non-Disney Marvel IP that Sony is going to do as part of a larger universe from the guys who did Into the Spider-Verse, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. And wrapping things up, Damian Lewis and Guy Pierce's drama A Spy Among Friends has found a new home at Epix, which will soon be MGM Plus, after Spectrum bailed on originals entirely. And speaking of Epix, because apparently the script told us that we are, oh yeah, that's a transition. Number two. Up next, we're going to go for another spin on the executive carousel. Nothing says hard-hitting segment as in the do-do-do-do-do-do-do of the executive carousel. But honestly, the biggest news of the year hit Sunday night, November 20th, when Disney dropped a huge bombshell. Bob Iger is returning as CEO, and his former replacement, Bob Chapek, gone without so much as a statement. So... Uh, I was at the Elton John show and, when this hit and uh, happened to be at, a, at an event hosted by Disney. And I had never seen execs scramble into a corner quietly to, to steer away from press like me, <laughs> like I have the way that I saw at Elton. So, Dan, you know, I'm sure you were around or at least saw this. What was your first reaction when you saw this news? Huh. No, honestly, that's that was that was my first reaction entirely is, huh? For me, it was wow. 
Okay, so you. <laughs> but it's uh, like I, you know, look, this was this has been choreographed, really. I mean, even though it was a huge bombshell that took almost everyone in the in town, including many people at, within Disney, by surprise, Chapek didn't exactly have a graceful tenure as CEO at Disney. <laughs> this is accurate, and uh, as you say, choreographed, telegraphed, whatever. Tell yeah, that's better. We, word. No, uh, all I'm saying is we knew something was coming. The sort of the. The, the whole picture of it was was sort of a huh that was that, that was where I was is is that's a very 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 big deal and it was absolutely one of those quintessential uh holiday news type dumps only rather larger than some of them yeah so what we're gonna expect first is going to be a complete restructuring and basically dismantling the the bonkers structure that Chapek built with, you know, Kareem Daniel build, leading a division that was basically in charge of the purse strings at Disney and took it, took the budgets and everything else and the spending out of the creatives, like the studio chiefs and the network toppers and the heads of the streaming services. So now, now that Iger is back, he's going to restore that where the creatives actually get to decide where they spend their resources and they don't have to deal with a separate division. Kareem Daniel is gone. I think that happened the next day. But we know that there is a hiring freeze at Disney. There's a hiring freeze at a lot of places right now. There will probably be layoffs in the, in the new year. So look for, forward to another spin coming later on the executive carousel under Disney when once Iger has his new structure. So that's what's going on at Disney. And now we're going to switch over over at CBS just a few days before the Iger bombshell. Kelly Call, the nearly three-decade-long CBS staffer, was pushed out as entertainment president alongside his top lieutenant, Tom Sherman. Instead, head of current Amy Reisenbach has been tapped to oversee the broadcast network. And for those of you who are keeping score at home, this is the third broadcast network to change its top exec this year after Mark Pedowitz exited the now Nexstar-controlled CW and Charlie Collier swapped Fox for Roku. And, you know, I was really surprised by this one. You know, as one source put it to me, I thought Kelly Call was going to be buried at CBS. So not a surprise that, you know, people would respond that way. But it is a surprise that to see him and Sherman gone because, well, CBS is still number one, a reign that they've had for the last five years. And it's it, honestly, it was it, it was a cost cutting move. You know, you're looking at a guy who has been there for three de nearly three decades. And instead, they, they got rid of two salaries installed the former head of current as the head of the network. It's just a bummer because, you know, there's a lot of institutional knowledge that Kel that went out the door with Kelly Call. And he's one of the better execs in this industry, knows that network very well. Sherman did it, had a good run as, as well um, there for five years alongside Kelly Call as the two of them kind of ran this together uh, in terms of, you know, Sherman was brought in to be kind of the creative guru while Kelly Call had all the scheduling experience among other areas. So the two really made a good a good team. But there is a cost savings when you re replace two guys that have been there for, well, Kel Kelly had been there for a long time with someone who hasn't. So big surprise there. Um, Dan, you know, what were your thoughts on this one? I just thought it was important that for all of Kelly Call's tenure at uh, at CBS and and as you say the vast amount of institutional knowledge and the and the very particular and fairly unique path that he took to his job because the scheduling position while obviously one of the most important on television is not one that usually leads to where Kelly Call ended up. No. I, and, and a lot of people on broadcast don't really have scheduling departments anymore. So oh. Because some people would tell you that scheduling is completely 
irrelevant. I, I don't think that a uh, friend of the podcast and frequent guest uh, Preston Beckman would tell you that. I'm, in fact, fairly certain he would tell you that's that's a lie. But anyway, no, my initial reaction was being amused that the only time that Kelly Call had ever appeared on the podcast was to talk about the first week's ratings for Love Island. That seemed very, very appropriate as the way to summarize his tenure at CBS as relayed through the TV's Top 5 podcast was he did come in to talk about why the ratings for the first week of Love Island were not so bad. So yeah, now thank was you for doing way that. back in episode 29 from July 2019. Yes, definitely. That was that was one of our first executive visits and a somewhat odd thing to have had someone in his position also to come on the podcast to talk about. But but hey, when you've got a hit, you take a victory lap. And sometimes that victory lap includes a podcast interview. But it wasn't a hit was the thing. It was he was justifying that it wasn't a hit, but it was a hit. So anyway, though, yes, uh, yeah. very long tenure. Very long tenure in a a network that has had people in long tenured positions, obviously, throughout the run, but also has had some tumultuousness in the past couple of years. So impressive tenure. But Yeah. And now more recently, in terms of the executive carousel, Amazon has now integrated MGM into its fold after the $8.5 billion deal closed in February in a shocking move, Jennifer Salky, whose lack of film experience has been a regular topic of conversation around the industry, was given oversight of MGM's film and TV divisions following a turf war with Mike Hopkins, to whom she reports at Amazon. And speaking of MGM, Michael Wright, who heads the MGM-controlled premium cable network currently known as Epix, has closed a new deal to stay and will report to Hopkins, who has also added oversight of MGM's unscripted divisions. You know, and by the way, Dan, after a full week of dealing with Amazon MGM stuff and looking at the big moves, obviously Mark Burnett is gone as head of global television within MGM. That the MGM scripted side has been placed under Vernon Sanders, who is head of television under Salky at Amazon. And Dan, if your head is spinning with me talking about who's overseeing what, I tried making an Amazon org chart this week. And let me just tell you, I felt felt like I went for a maybe far too many spins on this year executive carousel because I was dizzy and it took two different large postcards to kind of figure it all out. And it looks batshit. So if this is an easier structure, as sources have said that this was the intention, I don't know about that. So I've been feeling dizzy for a week, but that's that's COVID, Leslie. (laughs) I'll take your word for that. I still haven't had it, thankfully. So yeah, lots going on within the executive ranks, obviously, as we just went over. Lots going on at Disney. More to come there under Iger. CBS cutting some budget down. No no further layoffs expected at, at the, on the network side. This week, we did see the con- expected consolidation between CBS Studios, Paramount TV Studios, and Paramount Plus. The streamer and Paramount TV Studios, which is overseen by Nicole Clemens, have merged their development teams. David Staff, who runs CBS Studios, is it, you know trimmed a few people from the ranks, but it wasn't a big earth shattering thing. So you're still going to see both studios, CBS studios and Paramount TV studios continue to coexist under the the Paramount global banner. That is so a lot. what else do we t- want to talk about here? But it, honestly, like this feels like 2020 all over again, where you're seeing more and more consolidation across the industry. Some of it now, instead of being brought on by COVID and the financial strain of it is being brought on by the economic downturn. 
yeah, I think I think most of these things it's going to have to be a, a wait and see. Uh, you know, we if we, if we want to, we could we could go deep on the uh, the storied MGM uh, legacy of Mark Burnett's run there. Uh, we could we could talk about all that was accomplished uh, by Mark Burnett in that position. Uh, yeah, you know, considering. <laughs> That he's really the, you know, the the reality super producer known for hits like The Voice and Survivor and, God, there was a couple other ones, uh, Shark Tank over at ABC. You look at some of the unscripted stuff that he did for MGM TV and it's just like radio silence. Like there is no, no major hits there. And on the scripted side, which, you know, you can make an argument that he really didn't have full control over. That was Steve Stark, whom he pushed out. I mean, Stark was among the many executives who left MGM under the, the Burnett application of the studio. Steve Stark, congratulations, man. You got a big show hit on on Netflix Wednesday. The, the Adams Family offshoot it just broke a record or quote unquote record previously held by Stranger Things on over at Netflix, if you believe their quote unquote ratings. But again, Steve Stark's name is on that show, not Mark Burnett's. And yes, uh, we, we we do not take the ratings that Netflix provides on Wednesday or anything else entirely seriously. And yet, based on purely anecdotal conversations, I have zero doubt whatsoever that Wednesday appears to be a large hit. And you can listen to our chat with uh, the creators and showrunners from what episode, Leslie? You can go back and listen to our interview with Al Go and Miles Millar about Netflix's Wednesday back in episode 191 from October 28th of this year. Number three. Up third, it's the beginning of a new month. And that can only mean one thing. Filler segment! dun da 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 dun da 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 It's time to look at what's coming up in December. So, Leslie, you love going through this list, sometimes in alphabetical order, sometimes in confusingly random order. But yes, so much TV coming in December, and yet there are some quiet patches, so maybe this will be a good time for people to start catching up on great stuff they should have watched earlier in 2022, going through people's top 10 lists, seeing what they missed, in the cases of those of us who have another week and a half to prepare our top 10 lists, catching up on some things we've missed, etc. So what's to come? So I'm going to go through these alphabetically by platform. So leading off, ABC has its sort of live Beauty and the Beast special honoring the 30th anniversary of that movie. Over at Amazon, you've got Riches and the Return of Jack Ryan, one of its biggest hits, quote unquote hits. Over at Apple, Little America Season 2 and the Return of Slow Horses. Disney Plus debuts its new National Treasure TV show. Over at HBO and HBO Max, Gossip Girl Season 2, the final season of His Dark Materials, and the return of DC's Doom Patrol. And then Hulu, you've got Kindred, which is, of course, via FX. And Letterkenny, I know one of your favorites, Dan. Over on Netflix, you've got the final season of Firefly Lane. Friend of the Five, Alexi Hawley's new show, The Recruit, The Return of Emily in Paris, and The Witcher prequel, Blood Origin. Over on Paramount Plus, you've got the new Yellowstone prequel, 1923, starring Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. Peacock returns to The Best Man for what it's calling the final chapter. And at Showtime, the second and likely final season of Your Honor. Lots of, of weird stuff here, Dan, considering it's around the holidays. And none of this stuff exactly feels very like, everybody gather around the TV. We're all going to watch a show together. It's, it's a little bit 
of a hodgepodge. Uh, and absolutely. And some of the things do. I mean, I guess sort of a, a national treasure TV show is kind of the the that's ideal. That's a four-quadrant show. It, I get that. It, that's, that's the theory of it, whether or not it's true. I don't know. Jack Jack Ryan, I get the feeling, is a blockbuster success of a certain type for, for Amazon. I don't know if that is a everybody in your family gathers around the TV to watch it kind of success, but it absolutely I, – I get the feeling people do watch that show – what yeah, I you get to hear that your, you know, that your parents have been watching that when you get together over Christmas dinner. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the, there's value to that, but there's a, there's a, there's a lot of stuff here which <laughs> there there are a lot of things where like you might have forgotten that a first season of certain things ever existed in the first place. Uh, you might be confused why a second season has come so quickly. In the first category, I think you would put something like Little America, which which is a really a, a gem of a TV show on on Apple. Uh, but I think probably some people forget that a first season ever existed, and because it's kind of anthological, it's not like there's been a building appetite for a second season. I just think some people liked that show and would want more. With Slow Horses, they'd already shot the entire second run of episodes when the first run of episodes premiered. In fact, when we got our first set of screeners for episodes, there was a here's what's coming up on season two. I mentioned in my review that there was a season two coming up. I got specifically emailed and told I was not allowed to call it a season two because it was part of some sort of strange contractual whatever. It's absolutely a season two, and now they're just calling it a season two. But that's still a season two within the same year. So it's kind of like one of like the way that Atlanta had two seasons in one year and kind of in a strange way so did better call Saul it's it's a little strange um you know I get another Yellowstone prequel those things just keep churning out Emily in Paris remains the kind of quintessential uh ha 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 critics hate this show but it's really really popular for us and it could run absolutely for the rest of our lives I can't keep track of the number of additional ancillary Witcher projects, but this is the one that I believe has Michelle Yeoh in it. So, you know, that's interesting on on that level. Uh, it It is notable how few big originals there are or quote unquote originals. Like I can imagine how in some circumstances Kindred could be a kind of franchise type show for FX and for – Hulu, it is a major literary property to people who know it. The Octavia Butler book is is an iconic book. It's also, in its own way, it's it's very much an enticing and blockbustery premise. Uh, you know, it is a time travel story and all of that. Yet I feel as if probably the conversation seems to be a little quiet around it, in part because of the approach that they're taking. It's not a, you know, it's not a star-studded franchise type thing. So, you know, maybe that is is keeping the initial buzz from being something. And and when it actually comes out, people will talk about it for the substance of the show. Uh, but yeah, there it's it's kind of strange. I like that Hulu has decided to make new seasons of Letterkenny into a uh, basically a Christmas kind of celebratory drop because that is, as you mentioned, a show that I like a tremendous amount. I think that because there was the season of the spinoff series that came in the middle uh, of Shorzy, it, it feels to me like we just had a season of Letterkenny. And so that's that's a little bit of a, you know, maybe I'm not as hungry for it as I was for the last season. But yeah, 
awful lot of programming, an awful lot of mishmash of programming. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what cuts through, what vanishes entirely, what never got promoted in the first place. You mentioned uh, Amazon has riches this week. We'll talk about that a little bit more in Critics Corner, but it's still very much a Amazon has several new shows that are premiering this week that I get the feeling no one knows exists or are premiering and maybe they'll sneak up on people. Maybe they I couldn't won't. tell you what the riches is, Dan. I do uh, this for I, a living. I don't I'll, know what that show is. G- give me, give, give us, give us a few minutes in, in 50, in 15 to 25 minutes, I will tell everybody what the riches is and why they don't particularly need to watch it, but it's, it's got things about it that are, you know, whatever. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it is it is a little bit of a of a strange schedule. There is not the clear gather the family around the tree and watch why anyone would put a television on top of their tree. I don't know. December is weird. I'm looking forward to trying in the next couple of weeks to catch up on like four or five titles ahead of my top 10 list, which uh, as of this moment has seven shows entrenched and about 15 shows in the race for the next position. So we'll see. Anything so, could happen. So what are you catching up on, Dan? I, I'm not allowed to. I, I don't want to spoil anything, um, but but lots and lots of programming. <laughs> I've but, been, well, what have you been watching? Because we ask our showrunners this, but like, what have you been watching um, during the last couple of weeks, aside from the, the back of your eyelids? I've been watching Riches on Amazon and Three Pines on Amazon. You didn't even mention Three Pines, uh, also premiering this weekend on Amazon. Also don't know what that is. And new episodes of Slow Horses. I've just been keeping track. And of course, uh, like the rest of sensible people, I was finishing up on uh, the show that we're going to discuss in our very next segment, which also is absolutely and totally one of those 15 shows that will be in contention for one of my last three positions in my top 10. That sounds like a transition. And guess what it is? Up next! Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Number four. We are joined this week by Rolling Stone chief TV critic and friend of the five, Alan Seppenwall, for another season in review discussion, this time focused on the Disney Plus Star Wars series, Andor. Thanks so much for joining us, Alan. Welcome back. Uh, always happy to be here, guys. So, admittedly, I didn't watch or pay a whole lot of attention to the narrative around Andor. Um, honestly, it's weird. I've been more interested in some of the Marvel stuff than than the Star Wars stuff, which 
surprises even me. But anyway, what a, one of the things that I did glean is that this really does feel like an elevated Star Wars show. What do you guys, what was your season in review thought? Kick, you it, need, kick us away. You, you need to first give our warning to our listeners that this is a warning. We're going to talk about the entire season of, of yeah. Andor. And, so if you uh, haven't seen it, like me, and you don't want to be spoiled, well, maybe fast forward about 15 minutes or so. Because otherwise, we're going to tell you in exactly what episode Grogu appears. Yes. And by the way, as as we record this Mandalorian season three, just set a March return date. So we know what's what's coming up next on the Lucasfilm front. Whew, thank heavens. I, I just really have been without the Mandalorian for too long. I, I look forward to the people who only watch the Mandalorian tuning in and being completely lost about all like the stuff that happened on Book of Boba Fett with those characters. I'm aware that the second half of the Book of Boba Fett was completely and totally a season of Mandalorian, but I have no memory whatsoever of what happened with those characters. But I do remember that there was a de-aged Mark Hamill involved. Yes, and and Mandalorian gets kicked out of the Mandalorians, and he and Baby Yoda reunite. Yes, that's and what he happened. gets a cool new spaceship uh, built by Amy Sedaris. God, why have they not just given Amy Sedaris her own spinoff? Seriously, would watch that one. <laughs> I don't I don't understand any of the choices that they've made. But the important thing, and this is something that I've said on Twitter and that everybody else has said on Twitter, I am not in any way claiming this uh, as a as a topic, is that there's simultaneously a weird feeling of do we really need to go back to the friendly, cutesy, uh, adventurous fun world of the Mandalorian after having realized that Star Wars can once again be serious and important and thoughtful and for grown-ups. And the answer to that question is, of course, there's absolutely no reason why Star Wars needs to suddenly become a grown-up thing after having not been that for all the time. On the other hand, that for me does not change the fact that I simply have less interest in going back to the Mandalorian at this point. But are you eager to reunite with Mando and Grogu? Before we sure. Go back to I, I think I think there's room for both. I think the mistake you sometimes get with like genre is one thing pops that's different and suddenly everything starts chasing that. In comic books in the 80s, it was the same way. Like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns came out and suddenly everything had to be grim and gritty and comics aren't just for kids anymore. And most of those things sucked and it took like decades for the medium to pull out of it and realize like you can do serious and mature, but you can also do fun in all ages and both of those work. And I'm glad that Star Wars has, after almost 50 years, proved elastic enough to allow for both a show like Andor and a show like The Mandalorian. Exactly. If you're if you're milking IP, the idea that you can only milk IP in one way and in one direction is ridiculous. And I think that probably it points to how single-minded the Disney Plus Star Wars shows had been in milking IP in basically the same way previously. And so the fact that Andor was maybe taken more seriously, it's probably as much as, as anything a response to how lackluster both Obi-Wan Kenobi and Book of Boba Fett were than anything else. Like, I think that if the first season of Mandalorian, which people had great affection for, had come out, and then Andor had come out directly parallel to that, I think everyone would have been like, yay, it can be both of these things, as opposed to Andor having to suddenly be the palette ch chaser for quite a, for sort of the lackluster, nostalgia-obsessed wallowing that maybe had been done previously. And I, th I think maybe there was an overcompensation as a result, as opposed to just, hey, let's do five or six different things. If we do them well, it won't matter. 
If you do them badly, that's something else. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you hear a lot of the time with, with these MCU shows and movies, they will pay kind of lip service to, oh, we're doing this new genre, we're dealing with this new theme, we're trying to do something new, and while I like most of them, ultimately, it's more lip service than anything else, and they wind up fairly homogenized in terms of tone and structure and everything else. And among the things I like about Andor, and I don't think it's perfect, and we're going to get into that, is it really does feel different from everything else in the Star Wars universe, other than obviously Rogue One, which it's a prequel to. It's like, it's tactile, it's visceral, you know, it, it sort of does a lot of things that you do not necessarily expect out of a Star Wars, even though it's obviously set in that universe and set in this particular window of time leading up to the events of the first movie from 1977. It's grounded it's ground level more than grounded even i would say it's it's sort of it it takes us down to what's actually happening on the surface of these planets rather than who's flying around and zipping around and i think it had some of that as well i think if it had none of that like that's the thing a show like andor is a risk worth taking and a variation worth taking but the fact that it was good <laughs> is probably what saved it. Like, if it had been bad, if it had been just completely and totally self-serious, and I assume that there are people out there who probably thought that's what it was, but if it had only been the, okay, here's the grounded, self-serious, we're talking about revolution and the banality of evil and all of that, if it had just been that and it had sucked, I think that could have had the res the result of, killing off any variation whatsoever within this universe. So I think that's what I'm grateful for is it proved you can do these things, do them well and make some people happy as opposed to just doing them, doing them badly and making everyone go, Oh dear Lord, bring back the cute creatures and the CG. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's got this big sort of thematic ambition, but at the same time, like they tell one hell of a prison break story in the middle of it. You know, that Luthen rails like his little spaceship does battle with a Star Destroyer, whatever that kind of Imperial vessel was. And that looks cool. Like, you know, there's a heist. So they're able to do sort of the popcorn-y stuff in the midst of all of this talk about what is that, what sacrifices are actually involved in fomenting revolution. Um, and so I like that. Like, Tony Gilroy is an entertainer. I mean, he's he's able to do that as much as anything else. So, okay, one of the questions that I always wind up asking during these segments is, what about award season? So where do you think this one will get will get some play? Are we talking drama series category? Are we limited series category? Is is there going to be a season two? I mean, what do you well, think? Well, there, there is a season two. Gilroy yeah. has said, like, it's a two-season show. The next season is going to, like, each section is going to jump forward a year. Um, so it's going to cover the remaining, I guess, three years or so until what happens in Rogue One. And he's already done interviews where he's talked about how that's a thing that no TV show has ever done before and that they've already had the chance to do something complete and totally new in jumping forward in time. So I say once again, watch more TV movie people. Uh, no, but anyway, so yes, your your awards conversation jumps us to the end. I feel like maybe there's a lot of middle that we want to cover before regarding regarding Alan's journey and why he hated Cassian Andor so much. <laughs> hated him so, 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 so much, and whether by the end you learned to love Cassian Andor or simply to accept that you're bored by Cassian Andor but love everything about his world. I would say it is the latter. I watched Rogue One. I think Rogue One is terrific. I did not come out of that movie saying, 
gosh, I really wish I knew how Cassian Andor got to this point in his career as a rebel spy. Gosh, if I saw more adventures with people in this movie, I would want it to be Cassian Andor. Like, you know, if you give me a, a Jin Urso movie, if you give me a movie about Donnie Yen's character, uh, a number of other people, like, you know, shows, those could have been fun. I, I think Diego Luna's fine. I think he actually does some pretty good dramatic work here. I don't think Andor is that interesting a character. And so when the show starts off with three episodes that are largely Cassian kind of wandering around, looking sad and annoyed and flashing back to this, like, you know, childhood that even the show lost interest in afterwards, that was frustrating. And then you get into later episodes and you start seeing a lot more of Stellan Skarsgård and Genevieve O'Reilly and Andy Serkis and all of these other people. And it becomes, even though his name is in the title, it's not really the Cassian Andor show anymore. It's the Birth of the Rebellion show. And all of that stuff is really great. Uh, and I don't think that Andor ultimately become Cassian, the character, ultimately becomes that much more interesting and it's funny to me that he largely spends the finale just kind of watching what's happening and not doing a whole lot, which, you know, intentionally or not felt like a commentary on the show itself, because I thought the finale was really, really good. He was just incidental to most of it. Uh, I think that I think you're absolutely right that the first three episodes, there were choices made that I'm not completely sure were were right slash necessary. I think that you could have made the same point that they wanted to make with all of the stuff that happened in the first three episodes in 50 minutes. And I think that would have had a different, you know, you, I like the idea of this being the characters one season arc from not so much, uh, you know, not so much the roguish um, Han Solo, I'm not going to get involved. I don't care about the politics, whatever, whatever. But from all of the elements were there. And that's the thing that you do establish in the first couple episodes is that all of his frustrations are there. All of his past is there. All of the seeds that will eventually sprout when we get to Rogue One are there. And they wanted to show a journey for a character. And I think they did. And I think they showed it in very methodical fashion. And to me, the journey he went in in this one season as a uh, radicalizing journey, I think it was completely believable and a good piece of narrative. I think that it would have been a better piece of narrative if the first three episodes had done the things that they needed to do and established where he was in his world a little bit faster or more efficiently. And I do think they could have done those things. Still, to me, when you see his experiences in the heist part of the season, you see what those did to inform certain aspects. And then you see what happened in the prison and you see what those did to inform other aspects. And then you see the tragedy of the last couple episodes and how those pushed him in another direction. I can accept that we have a, a, a show which is dedicating itself to a one-season journey to put our character in some place slightly more fun for a second season, and then that way we know that it's leading to where it leads in the third season, where he he is a revolutionary. He is a, a true believer. I, I'm fine with an idea of a show that wants to dedicate itself to planting seeds, and I think that that's what this season was, and I don't think at any point the show tried to make you think after the first three episodes, I don't think the show tried to make you think that 
Andor was a conventional, and this again, Cassian Andor, not the show itself, that Cassian was a conventional hero and that he was in that part of his hero's journey. I think it always said, here is the person in the middle who isn't sure where he fits in. Here are the people around him who fit in in the other places. Let's watch him gravitate. And I kind of wonder if maybe if we didn't know where the where the character is in Rogue One, if we didn't know which way he was going to gravitate, if that might have made a little bit more tension in his journey, because we know we know where he's going to go and we know where the seeds are going to sprout. So, yeah, I, I think that there are some reservations that I can understand involving the character. I just never thought the show made us think that we were supposed to think he was dynamic and fun. He was just a person who was in the middle of things, and we had to watch and see how he was going to go the way that he went. And and I get what you're saying, and I think it was methodical in some ways, but not in others. So, like, the prison story, which to me, for the most part, was the, the dramatic highlight of the season, that ultimately feels more like uh, consciousness-raising for the Andy Circus character than it does for Andor. Like, you see him, he gets there, he realizes right away, this is a bad place, I have to get out of here. And then you jump to the start of the next episode, and he is already working in secret with other prisoners to sort of plot this this escape and figure out how they can all get out of there. And that, to me, like more than anything else, is like the most crucial step on this whole journey that Tony Gilroy is trying to put him on in this season. And it happens in between episodes. Like, that's the kind of thing, if you really want to do this and you really want to devote a 12-episode season to showing every single step of how this guy gets from point A to point B. I don't know why you're like leaving that on the table like that. I just think that that was only, I think there were two arcs in that arc. I think one of them was absolutely the Andy Serkis arc. And I think that again, it's not Cassian Andor as the star of his own world. It's Cassian Andor thinks he's the star of his own world. And over the course of a season of television, he comes to realize the place he fits into the other world. So he, he figures, whatever he is, he figures he's the rogue anti-hero of his own story. He thinks his backstory has informed where he is at the beginning of the series. He thinks that he is the actualized version of all of the things that have come before. And over the course of a season, he comes to realize that was something that was only taking him to a certain point. And so I think that he gets to be a secondary figure in a bunch of other adventures or other journeys, or even when he's a primary figure, the thing that he's in the middle of is only a secondary thing. Or in the case of the heist, it was always kind of secondary to there's this interstellar once in a lifetime or once in every decades, whatever, you know, star thing that's happening. And here's the little adventure and exciting thing that's happening and the piece of daring do that's happening underneath. But even still, you had that whole adventure had the young revolutionary who was writing his book and being nerdy. It had the rapscallion played by Desi from Girls who was going what the other direction was that Cassian could have gone. He could just as easily have become Desi from Girls. And, you know, thank heavens he didn't become Desi from Girls because you should never become Desi from Girls. Uh, but or whatever his name is on the bear or Richie. He's Richie from the bear now. I can't believe you're still calling him Desi. Oh, no, no, he's Desi from Girls. That's that's what he is. I mean, if you want him to be Evan Moss Backrack, that's also fine. But he's he's Desi from Girls eternally. So so, yeah, no, I don't have a problem with him being a secondary figure in a much in a in a different 
character's journey because those characters inform him. And similarly, I thought all of the things that we sort of learned in the last couple episodes about about the Fiona Shaw character, about Marva and what her background was and her background, which was stuff that we didn't see at all. You know, it was stuff that we simply we we knew that she had this past, but but sort of the idea that she had had this heroic life, that there is this entire series that's about Marva that we you know, we could get a prequel to this that's about her. Uh I, I like those ideas that he has to go through these different stages before he's going to become the, the hero in his own life. And that at least in the intervening time, maybe he's still having adventures, but he's not the man who's going to eventually participate in whatever. You know, I, I, I'm I'm OK with that. And also, I'm OK with that if you have something like Andy Serkis, who was so wonderful. Like, I think the first three episodes suffer because there isn't that thing to hook you in. It's it's sort of are you, you're paying attention to what the story is, you're getting accustomed to what the world is, but you're not you're not in it. And I, I agree with that. I I also thought the first few episodes, I, I, there was a better way to do it. I but I ultimately was so caught up by the end, and I thought yes. there was so much craftsmanship throughout the middle and the end. I mean, God, I was just, before we did the podcast, I was just rewatching the funeral procession and how it builds into the melee. And that's just so spectacular. And it's, it's so well written. It's so well directed by Benjamin Karen. And I, and I like, I like all of the people who were involved in this show who have these other credits and you go, will we be able to see what it is from the other shows? And so you had Bo Willimon, and you think, okay, will you be able to notice Bo Williman's writing signature touch? And the episodes that he wrote, you can see the political consideration in every single scene. And you go, absolutely, sure. I can see how that was the guy who wrote uh, House of Cards, who did that, for sure. Yeah. Similarly, this absolutely, I could see how this was kind of like an episode of The Crown, kind of like one of those standalone episodes. Here was the episode in which a melee broke out on Ferrex at a funeral and how was the queen going to react? And this was the part where we saw all of the melee and maybe we'll cut back and see how Olivia Coleman was very, very sad about the whole thing, except we got the other people instead. So yeah. I, the, the patience that's required to set up something like that funeral procession where it's like, you know, something bad's going to happen, but they take their sweet, sweet time setting that up, preparing for you, making it feel tenser and tenser before you finally get that release of the riot is really impressive. I mean, the prison arc is kind of the same way. Like, they establish very quickly the problem with the floor and how dangerous that is, but, like, it takes a while for you to sort of understand exactly how everything functions and thus how Andor and Kino and everybody else are going to find their way out of there. It's like, it's one of the advantages of them doing 12 episodes. And sometimes with these streaming shows... If they do 12 or 13, it feels deadly. It's just dragging and dragging. And among the smarter things that Gilroy did was he's like, I'm going to break this down into two or three episode segments instead. And that wound up working really well. I don't think the first segment's good at all, but the heist, the prison break, and then the concluding stuff were all pretty fantastic. I just liked that there was a chance for two to three minutes of people in a small town political band tuning their instruments. I yes, just I like that they were able to do that because it did it built the tension. 
It built all of the directions that when things were going to finally go chaotic, where they were going to come from, who they were going to involve, which of our characters were going to be caught in the fracas in which way. I, I, I really, it's such a, it's a, such a good piece of craftsmanship down the, the home stretch. Yeah. And you mentioned Bo Willimon and I was really not a fan of house of cards, but the, the dude can write oratory and the speech he gives Stellan Skarsgård to give, you know, like I burn my future for a sunrise. I will never see all of that. Like that's fantastic. Like that's one of the best like speeches in any star war thing. And, and, and lots of little things like that. There was, there was Nemec's uh, recording speech, whatever in the, in the finale, which is, you know, it's a, it's a little bit perfunctory as, as rebel oratory, but it's also still good and still hits you right in the gut and still makes you examine all manner of, of both contemporary and past history and, and make resonances out of those things uh, as you see fit. Um, who amongst us is the, who amongst us are the rebels and who amongst us are the empire, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so let's see, do we want to go back now to Leslie's question? Uh, Emmys, let's talk <laughs> Emmys. I mean, certainly, like, you could nominate Skarsgård, you could nominate Genevieve O'Reilly, you could give Andy Serkis a guest nomination. I don't know that that's going to happen, um, because Succession's going to be back in the spring. That's going to eat up a lot of spots. You assume Better Call Saul is, although, as as I think you guys have talked about, maybe the world is just going to forget about that. But there's, you know, The Crown just did a season. So you've got three shows right there that tend to get lots and lots of nominations. Um, and then there's other things that I'm sure I'm blanking on right in this moment. Like, is there going to be room at the end? Are people going to, like, think of Andor in that way on that level when it comes time for nominations? And and yet somehow The Mandalorian was a, was a series nominee, you know, it got... <laughs> 20 some odd nominations a couple times. So But weren't I, pretty much all of them other than that technical? Uh I think probably yes, but still there was there were a lot of nominations for for the Mandalorians. Yeah. And though and and it will be a, an interesting question to for voters to figure out whether this is the kind of show that they feel is a special effects type show given that it's a much more subtle piece of special effects driven television than the Mandalorian where you had an adorable little baby Yoda. So you could always just go, okay, that's what the effects look like. This certainly there were large spaceships and all of that are, is anyone going to look at the effects and technical stuff of a show like this and go, okay, it's on the same level as house of the dragon or, or Lord of the Rings. I think without any question it is, but yeah, house of the dragon is going to get some nominations. Stranger things is going to get some nominations. So you're, you're running out of room quickly. And a lot of the things that I think are worthy are harder to kind of, I don't know, to, to sort of get your mind around as awards contention. So, you know, we've talked all this time and we haven't even mentioned my favorite performance on the show, which is uh, Kyle Soler. Oh, uh, love him. And, and he's so good. And that, to me, absolutely is the kind of performance that I, I would be perfectly happy to see pop up in a supporting actor uh, field. And I just don't know if anyone's going to look at it and go... That's an award style performance. Whereas I think Andy Serkis, because they so very well 
kept it to that one little arc. There's no risk of it being, you know, which category is it going to go? No, he's he's a guest actor. And that to me is absolutely the kind of performance that I would love to see get recognized in a in a guest actor field. I think Stellan Starsgard's in a in a tougher place because I suspect he was in enough episodes that uh that it overflows into supporting for him also. But he was he was wonderful and and you mentioned the monologue he had that is as good a acting monologue as anyone is going to get this season. And then all of the actors performances that are similarly, you know, whether Genevieve O'Reilly is going to be in conversations, whether Denise Goff is going to be in conversations, um, Catherine Hunter, probably not, even though she's probably my second favorite part of the show uh, <laughs> as as Cyril's um, I mean, for want of a better word, his nagging Jewish mother, but I think there's more to it than <laughs> I've, I've heard some people attempt to claim there's anti-Semitism involved in the characterization. I do not personally believe that, but I do believe that she is playing a certain type of archetypal mother. I just think she played it in really, really interesting ways. I thought the breakfast scene where, where she reacted to his success in his new job, I thought that was just a beautiful piece of performance. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be interested because, as you say, there are, as always, a lot of TV shows. And and so Succession is there towering over everything, but yet we forget that the year before that, The Crown won every single Emmy. So, yep, you know, and I, I don't feel like anyone has really been talking about the new season of The Crown, and I think there's probably somewhat a reason for that but maybe we'll discover that people have been talking about it we just haven't been hearing about it i i don't know <laughs> so yeah that's that would be my guess leslie is i think it'll probably do well below the line uh unless people just decide like this is they want to push for the idea that like if we're going to be stuck with all this ip if we're going to be stuck with all these franchises we should throw our support behind one that's actually trying to aspire to the kind of TV that, like, we admire, as opposed to just the pew, 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 pew. Which I'm okay with, as we are both in the midst of making our respective top tens. Sometimes you get to you get to slots 8, 9, and 10, and you're like, is the thing I want to put there, is it necessarily 100% the best show there? Or is it a show that's roughly as good that, to me, needs more love or represents something I want to see in the world or something like that. I think that I think it's a conversation that's worthy. And I think that not just the technical stuff, but I think one could certainly make uh, arguments that there are episodes that were as well written as anything on TV this year, uh, which is kind of a funny thing to say about a, a Star Wars show or not always the thing that you would say about a Star Wars yeah. show or the direction. And I know people like your colleague Rick Porter have, have sort of talked about how, like, the numbers for this are not as good. What we know of streaming numbers are not as good as they are for Mandalorian or even Book of Boba Fett or Obi-Wan. And so that's disappointing, but I guess maybe not surprising. But we'll see if that also has some impact, because I think obviously one of the reasons Mandalorian got that, like, series nomination is because people looked at it as a big hit. We're going to award the big hit. And look, if uh, going back to where we started here... I'm totally fine with the idea that if you're going to be churning out Star Wars-based IP, that some of them are going to be blockbusters that everybody's going to talk about, and some of them are going to be things that a small group of people will love. I like the idea that there's room for a little bit of indie cinema within the Star Wars world, or something that feels a little bit like indie cinema, that it doesn't all need to be four-quadrant, that, you know, you can actually do 
a two quadrant Star Wars show or a one quadrant Star Wars show. Give 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 Dan and Leslie and Alan their Amy Sedaris uh, uh, garage sitcom. Why not? Why can't you have a little bit of each for a bunch of different people? Why can't there be shows that I simply don't care about at all? Give somebody else whatever that pandering show is. I, I like the idea of just doing that. Yeah, I mean, the sight and sound poll was announced today. Like, why can't you do, like, a version of Gene Dealman, only it's about Cyril's mom, and sort of, like, the drudgery of her life raising this kid? Ah, fine and timely reference, Alan. I, I appreciate your bringing, bringing the cinematic world into our discussion. So, well, yes. you know, I mean, as, as Diego Luna said, they were making a 12-hour movie. So it's all, it's all content. It's all basically the same thing, right? He also said that all he wanted to do was touch Jabba the Hutt, and so far no one has <laughs> given him the opportunity to do that. So, Well, that's sad. That's, that's got to happen in season two, or what are that we also even doing here? really inappropriate. Uh, you, you can, you can go back. He, he did many, many interviews when he was doing Rogue One, where he talked about his fascination with Jabba and many, many reporters followed up on those comments, uh, in his most recent press tour. So it is, it is a thing that has been discussed. Uh, so what do you want to promote, Alan? What, what, what you got recently? I believe Rolling Stone recently counted down some, uh, some television theme songs. Yeah, we, we ranked the 100 greatest theme songs of all time, or at least American in this case. I, th I think we decided, unlike when we'd done some other polls, like we weren't going to open the can of worms of having like one British show or one Canadian show or something like that. Uh, and so we, we went through a lot of different eras, a lot of different genres of both show and music. It was a lot of fun. Obviously, we've been getting a lot of what about this, what about that. But I feel pretty good about what we wound up including, even though I'm sad that like, uh, the Perfect Strangers theme is not on there. The Sports Center theme is not on there. A, a num Barney Miller, a number of other things. But, you know, not only a lot of great TV over the years, a lot of great theme songs over the years. But where did Sanford and Sons rank? Because in terms of earworms, that's yeah. number one on my list. Number three. There you go. Yeah. And I hadn't seen that list yet, by the way. Yeah, Street so. Beater by Quincy Jones. It's a hell of a song. Yep. Ba -ba -ba I'm sorry to all of our listeners that's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the night well Alan thank you so much for joining us again it's always a privilege to hear you and Dan go at it it's a privilege to be in the company of two of my favorite people so thank you number five as usual we wrap things up with the critics corner among this week's major new launches Willow returns on Disney plus Amazon launches the riches and three pines and you've got season two of Slow Horses on Apple. Dan, what you got? It's a, I'm not going to tell you it's a busy week this week. I'm going to tell you this is a great week to catch up on other things. Uh, <laughs> but the, I think, honestly, of the things that are premiering this week, there are audiences for them. The question is going to be whether anyone is doing anything to promote these shows and get them out there to those audiences or whether... People are just going to be relying on me to tell them that the shows exist either on this podcast or in my regular Now See This newsletter coming out every Friday. Uh, so, yes, Willow is premiering on Disney+. Plus. It has already premiered with its first couple episodes. And if for some reason you aren't 
Generation X or Millennial or simply don't care. It is, of course, based on the 1988 fantasy film directed by Ron Howard and from a story by George Lucas. Uh, I don't know if you've rewatched Willow lately. I have. It's not a bad movie. I, it's, you know, it's not a great movie. In my childhood, I thought it was a great movie, but, you know, it came out when I was 10, and and I appreciated it uh, because it was sort of a, a fun version of fantasy as opposed to the somewhat more self-serious versions of fantasy that existed also out there. You know, this was also roughly the same time that young Dan was very entranced by Lady Hawk. Everyone was kind of into legend and labyrinth, and, and some people were into crawl and Beastmaster. There were a lot of that you you can't see Beastmaster, Leslie, yeah. But she's apparently a large Beastmaster fan. Who knew? Why were you a large Beastmaster fan, I Leslie? Don't know. And where and where is my Beastmaster television show? It was I just always watched when that thing was on, and it felt like it was on all the time on like KTLA or something here. But like I used to, I mean, it was just the animals. It was a cool little thing, and there was like a tiger. If I if memory serves, like yeah, they should do a Beastmaster show. But I don't know how you do that without without a bunch of animals and PETA screaming at you. So I think that is absolutely completely true that a lot of these things are are movies that those of us of a specific generation grew up watching over and over and over again because they were in you know constant rotation on HBO at that time or or on in some cases cable or whatever, but definitely Crawl was a movie that was constantly on HBO and Also why I still love a Christmas story. Despite uh, my wife absolutely hating it i i am right there with natalie on that one. Oh, um, come on you'll shoot your eye up i can't go on yeah no sorry i'm i'm a t team natalie on this one uh <laughs> which is okay guess what christmas story does not need my affection to continue on in people's hearts uh similarly willow is you know willow's not a great movie if you go back and you and you rewatch it now the effects are really and truly kind of horrible actually and 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 much 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 more horrible than a movie executive produced by George Lucas and Ron, and directed by Ron Howard should be like i don't know that Ron Howard has a clue how to use some of the effects that he's using in that movie um <laughs> But uh, I'm not even sure. Leslie is showing me now some picture of somebody's house house decorations. Is that your house? Damn right. It's my house. You have Baby Yoda out in front of your house? Damn right. I have Baby Yoda. He's holding a candy cane. I can't tell that because you're just showing me a picture on your phone. Anyway, it's totally adorable. But do uh, you see what's in the middle here of this photo, Dan? Honestly, no. Oh, it's what's his name? It's, it's Peter Billingsley in a bunny suit from A Christmas Story. Yes, Christmas. As an story. inflatable lawn ornament. Yes. In front of my house. Next to How? Baby Yoda and the gayest Christmas tree you'll ever see. It is a very, very gay Christmas tree, listeners. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's so but still in all, the thing the movie does have a lot of things going for it. I think Val Kilmer is is just great as the Harrison Ford stand-in as the sort of the rascal who who grows a heart, Mad Mardigan. Uh, Joanne Wally at that point was was both smoking hot and totally badass, and it's it's just a good, fun part for her. And Warwick Davis is has long been truly an underappreciated, underutilized actor in, in Hollywood, and if Life is Short didn't prove that, so much the worse for us all. It's a great performance, and the movie also has a wonderful James Horner score. Such a great score, one of one of the the sort of peak fantasy scores. As for the TV series, it fits into the 
sort of category of Disney Plus shows based on movies that people have more affection for than their actual quality necessarily dictates. So it goes in that same category with the Turner and Hooch and the uh, whichever the Mighty Ducks thing was, and of course doing sequels to Enchanted and Hocus Pocus, etc. A lot of things that are basically counting on you having a lot of nostalgia. I think that if you don't have nostalgia for Willow, if you have no nostalgia for Willow at all, I think that the TV series, which was adapted by uh, Jonathan Kasdan, son of, of course, Lawrence Kasdan, and brother of uh, the writer and director of the TV set, a little movie that listeners know that Leslie is a passionate devotee of. Um, it's like, I, I feel like if you have no connection to the movie at all, it is a completely generic premise and execution. I think if you have some affection for it, and I do, I do have affection for it. I, I think it works decently, unremarkably, and therefore probably in roughly the correct proportions for the movie it's adapting. So again, it brings back Warwick Davis and the premise is basically identical. It's dark forces are brewing. And once again, the most important thing in all of the fantasy realm is keeping Alora Dannon, uh, this magical little baby who has now grown up to a, a young woman, keeping her safe. And that's just it. It's very simple. It's will we be able to keep Alora Dannon safe? Well, we already know that she's safe because we watch Reservation Dogs, in which the main character's name is Laura Dannon, and everyone references how much they love Willow. So, totally, clearly safe. And, um, yeah, the, you know, it's got some decent actors. That There was a strange decision made to treat the entire premise with a fair amount of, of irony to sort of uh, have a lot of modern touches and modern dialogue. And I don't understand that because it's not at all what the original movie is. The original movie is silly and goofy. But the thing it's paying homage to is not itself. It's paying homage to the same Saturday afternoon serials that George Lucas obviously loved and and that were central to Star Wars and central to the, the Indiana Jones movies, etc. So it's not supposed to be this winking and nudging and we're doing commentary on the thing that it is project that the series has decided to be. I, I don't get necessarily why that was the choice. But a lot of the performances are are very likable and appealing. Again, starting with Warwick Davis, uh, got people like Ellie Bamber, who I really liked in the semi-recent uh, TV miniseries adaptation of Les Miserables. She was very good in that. Aaron Kellyman, who was one of the good parts of, I think it was Falcon and the Winter Soldier, uh, which had many, many problems also. I think that uh, Amar Chada uh, Patel is very, very funny as Borman, who's kind of, to some degree, the Mad Mardigan stand-in, but to my mind, really was an awful lot like Roy Kent as a uh, fantasy soldier, thief, whatever. Kind of interesting. Again, the, eff the effects are not fantastic, and so part of the problem comes when a show like Willow has to premiere a couple months after a very, very expensive, far superior piece of, of core fantasy in uh, in the Lord of the Rings series premiered. Also, another Game of Thrones show. So we, we've kind of seen what happens if you throw an inexhaustible amount of money at a fantasy franchise, and that is not <clears> what this <throat> is. <clears throat> 
I mean, that's that's sort of more sci-fi and stuff, etc. But yeah, this this doesn't really feel like that. It, but on the other hand, it doesn't feel embarrassingly cheap or anything either. I, I basically the bottom line of the review that I'll just been rambling through is if you have affection for the fa- franchise, I think you can find affection for the series. If you don't, it's kind of generic, but maybe it'll fill the time. Uh, so yes, you mentioned the couple of new Amazon shows that you probably haven't heard of because they don't involve hobbits and therefore Amazon doesn't know how to promote them. Um, Riches is, it's a six-part British co-production. It's from Abby Ajay, uh, who has worked with Shonda Rhimes on a couple of shows, including most recently Inventing Anna. And it's kind of in the succession slash empire vein. It's the story of a a fashion cosmetics mogul in London who has a huge black-owned uh, fashion business empire, whatever. Anyway, he dies and his will is very confusing and leaves the fashion industry thing to his two children from a previous relationship slash marriage rather than his existing family. And this produces a corporate war. Um, It's, you know, it's, it's very much of a certain soapy family in conflict vein. I think that it is much better than, for example, Monarch on Fox that premiered earlier this year. If, If what we're talking about is kind of the, the broadcast friendly version of what a, primetime soap looks like these days, this is much better than that. So there's value to that. Also, I truly loved Sarah Niles, an Emmy nominee for the second season of Ted Lasso. She plays the scorned matriarch of the side of the family that got hosed in the patriarch's will. And she is just having a total blast playing kind of the variation on Cookie from Empire, I guess, for want of a better description. So there are reasons to watch it. Um, it's only a six episode so- show, so you know that they're not overextending the various mysteries because there's going to be, of course, a mystery on why the why the patriarch died at all and why he left the business to the black sheep kids. Uh, it, it's not really all that interesting a mystery anyway. Also, the show looks really, really, really cheap, and that to me is is frustrating because everyone's constantly ca- talking about how expensive their offices are and stuff and how lavish their lifestyle is. And the offices look like somebody basically found available offices that they could shoot in. There's no sense at all of opulence to anything here. And so I watched a few episodes. I'm probably done, but I think that if you're a fan of the thing that it is, I think that you could be amused by it. Uh, similarly, I think probably, and and perhaps even easier to kind of isolate who the, the target audience is, uh, Three Pines is based on a series of detective novels by uh, Canadian author Louise Penny, and it stars Alfred Molina as Chief Inspector Armand Gamache. And it is, it's a fairly likable, sometimes occasionally mid-level aspiring semi-procedural. So basically, it's kind of half taking individual books from the series and solving the crimes in a couple episodes. And then there's a bigger breakdown of the ongoing phenomenon of missing Native and Indigenous uh, 
women and girls. And so it's set initially in Montreal, but our hero, Chief Inspector Gamache, gets called out to the small community of Three Pines to solve a, a murder and deals with all of the quirky residents of the community of Three Pines. And I think that there's some disconnect between the quirky small town murder mystery stuff and the attempt to do right by indigenous issues in Canada. But I, I also think that there is a serious minded approach to it. So it's not like a show like uh, Big Sky where they really kind of buried, oh, look, we're going to do a cheap exploitative you know, missing Indigenous women kind of thing. And similarly, Alaska Daily is a little bit better at that. This, at least, it's kind of 50-50. It's, okay, we're we're paying serious talk to, uh, you know, the schools and and parents and children separated and horrible abuses. We're going to do that seriously. And then there are these murder mysteries that are kind of weird and quirky, and it balances those two decently. I think Alfred Molina is a lot of fun here. I think there's a lot of fun in in seeing him playing basically another version of Sherlock Holmes. He, you know, he, he, he knows a little bit about everything and he solves crimes by squinting. And that's kind of how it goes. I, I did get tired of the structure and, and really wished that at a certain point it would either commit to being just, okay, we're light and quirky or okay, we're serious and important. And I don't know they go together, which is roughly the same problem that Alaska Daily had for me is, you know, you want to do right by a serious issue and that's fine. You also want to tell a story that people will want to watch on a weekly basis. Is there a way to do both at the same time? And I think the answer is probably mm, hard to, hard to tell. But I, I think that there is absolutely an audience out there for this. And I think that probably this is the one that is more likely to find an audience on Amazon because I think this is one of those – it's one of those literary adaptations that really does have an audience out there. And I don't know if anyone necessarily who's a fan of those books knows that this is even happening at all. Uh, but it is. So if you're a fan of the Inspector Gamache novels, there's a series. And it stars Alfred Molina, who's awesome. Why would you not want to watch that? And finally, speaking of adaptations, I liked the first season of Slow Horses, and I liked the second season roughly as much. It it continues to have a lot of the same elements going for it that are appealing. I think that it also benefits from not needing to establish the world of Slough House here in the way that the first season did, where it had to introduce you to the characters, it had to make sure that you understand that while Gary Oldman's character... Uh, the ultimate spy who came in from the cold is um, slovenly and embarrassing and gone to seed and he farts all the time. He's also brilliant. And it, it, it had to do a lot of exposition that the second season, fortunately, just gets to do away with. It still starts a little bit slow. I would say that by the third episode, the plot had kicked in and I was fully on board. I think it's a much more comfortable performance for Gary Oldman here. And I think he's much better. I mean, you know, just. It's all the way until episode five between before he farts and clears a room with his fart. So if the only thing that you found memorable about the first season was that the main character played by Gary Oldman farts a lot, there's still some of that. It's just not as central to the character. Uh, the actual plot itself, though, I think progresses a lot better. There's a lot of nice British countryside stuff that comes in. There's also a lot of good London stuff. So, yeah, I, I remain a general fan of Slow Horses and uh, maybe a little bit less funny this season, maybe a little bit more exciting and spy crafty this season. But, yeah. So, anyway, without any question, my favorite 
of the shows premiering this week and one that I didn't have a chance to to review and actually didn't have a chance to watch until earlier this year when I watched it for... uh, for nomination duty as part of the Gotham Awards jury that I sit on uh, is HBO Max's Sort Of, which is a CBC Canadian television comedy. And if you haven't watched it, the first season is all on HBO Max, and now the second season is uh, has premiered this week. And it's it's just it's just a really good, really distinctive uh, comedy about a, a a non-binary character trying to navigate their world in contemporary. Canada. Um, the main character is Sabi. Uh, they're a trained electrician, but currently working as a nanny to a family that undergoes a serious piece of health drama. And Sabi has to, I don't know, take on a different role in the household. There are elements of the show that are a little bit like uh, This is Going to Be Okay, the freeform show that I really, really also enjoyed that aired two seasons and then was canceled. Um, and I think, I think there are similarities, sort of the, the fish out of water parental figure still trying to navigate their world and trying to figure out their identity and all of that. Uh, Bilal Beg is the uh, main actor who plays Sabi, uh, also co-created the show with uh, Fab Filippo. And it's a comedy that is genuinely funny. It is, it is sharply written. It, it has, I don't want to say punchlines because it's a, it's a single cam. It's, it's not, that it has a a ton of heart and the characters aren't like any other characters on tv and that sometimes is just that sometimes is where i go when it comes to to quality is have i seen these characters have i heard these conversations before have i seen these relationships before and if the answer is no i give a lot of credit for that and i think that that's rather consistently the case on sort of is that it's not really a show about being non-binary and, you know, I, but it is. So I don't, I, I don't know why I'm trying to step away from that. It is about being part of a first generation immigrant family, about being Canadian, about being non-binary, about navigating how you want to define yourself and who you want to define yourself to and all of that. But there's, there's a tremendous amount of warmth to it. There's a tremendous amount of prickliness and strangeness to it uh, because a lot of the characters are not necessarily good people doing good things. It's it's a lot of people dealing with adversity in really, really messy ways. And Sabi is not a character who deals flawlessly with adversity. The family that has the the semi-tragedy happening to it. Uh, Gray Powell plays Paul, the husband in, in the couple. The wife gets hit by a car in the in the premiere, a truck, I guess, and uh, the family is thrown upside down. And, and his character handles everything in almost all the wrong ways. And uh, Sabi's best friend is played by Amanda Cordner. Uh, their name is, is Seven. They do a lot of stupid things. It's a lot of people doing stupid, messy things, which was also the case in Everything's Gonna Be Okay, is, is just characters making mistakes and characters making mistakes in ways that are funny and emotional and relatable. And I think sort of does a, a tremendous amount of of that. So so before getting into anything else this week, that would be my pick of the show that people should should be sure to check out. It's it's sort of on HBO Max. The second season is new, the first season is all available. Episodes are 
really, really fast. It's it's sort of broadcast Canadian television half hour. So 21 minutes, 22 minutes. I went through the first season in an afternoon. You can do the same. Uh, it's It's a really good and special show. So to recap, the best show of the week, or the best show of the week in my opinion, is HBO Max's Sort Of, which returns for a second season. Uh, two seasons, eight episodes apiece, 22 minutes per episode. It's a big-hearted, poignant Canadian comedy, and it's not really like anything else on TV. If you're a fan of Willow, well, Disney Plus has Willow. It's a lot like that. Over on Amazon, they have two new shows premiering this week that you ha probably haven't heard of. Riches is Empire-esque or Succession-esque. It's not really that good, but Sarah Niles is very, very good as a scorned matriarch. Uh, and also Three Pines, a literary adaptation featuring Alfred Molina as a crime solver in Quebec solving crimes and also looking for missing indigenous women. It has its moments, structural problems as well. And Slow Horses is back for a second season on Apple TV Plus, less farting, the same number of horses that are slow. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers do help spread the word of mouth, especially when we decide to take two weeks off and, you know, need the word of mouth. We're always happy to hear from you guys on Twitter, Mastodon, Hive, Post, Flurg. Uh, <laughs> we totally are. So come let us know what's working, what isn't working. Uh, and, and a big shout out to those of you who have tagged us on social media um, with your Spotify podcast wraps. Thank you for being loyal listeners and friends of the five. Yes, we love you all very much. If you have questions, though, for future mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5 at thr.com. The numeral five in there. See, it's been too long. I just don't remember my script anymore. Maybe I'll be sharper next week. Until next week, Leslie. Until then, Dan. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.